Tonight's reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 3, starting at verse 22, which can be found on page 1066 in the Church Bibles. That's John, chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. My name is Andrew Fellows. I'm a member of this church. I attend the 930 service, and it's a huge privilege to be here because rumor has it that the cool people, really cool people in the church, hang out here on a Sunday evening. So thank you for letting me in. You'll probably kick me out, but it's good to be here. Um, Now, I love John's Gospel, uh, and I'd say it's a very good way to fill a Sunday evening by grappling with a bit of it. And our question following on from the reading from Heather, is what does this passage have to say to us? Now, just so you know, I did prepare a PowerPoint presentation, but my technical abilities are very limited, and I just learned tonight from Heather that if you're on the cutting edge today, you don't have PowerPoint. So, somewhat inadvertently, I don't have PowerPoint. Um, So, follow me carefully. So, what is this passage about? 
Well, the passage just read for us is highlighting the critical link between testimony and belief. It's putting those two things together. And this link between testimony and belief is a very neglected truth. And I'm going to suggest it's at the very core of our faith. So in order to get to my point tonight, I'm going to have to do some groundwork. And you're going to think at times that I'm off on a tangent, that I'm going down rabbit trails, but I promise you, I promise you, please believe me, my testimony, I will bring it home. Okay? Great. So, testimony and belief are actually the key to understanding this whole book, the Gospel of John. John is wanting his readers to become believers on the basis of a testimony. So in John 20, verse 31, he says, This is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Then later on in John 21, verse 24, he says, I'm the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know this testimony is true. I'm writing so you'll believe in Jesus, and the basis of this belief is testimony. Now, in order to grapple with this link, we need to stand back for a moment and think about belief. What is a belief? Well, all of us carry around multiple beliefs about all sorts of things. Some of our beliefs are relatively trivial in terms of their subject matter. If you like weather forecasts, you will believe that a new weather front is moving in that's going to cause the temperature to drop next week. It's a good belief. It's all right. But the content of that belief is not exactly life and death in terms of its significance. You might think that if you get wet as you step out your door, but it's not that big a consequential belief. Other beliefs that we have carry much greater consequence in terms of the content of it. So you may believe, for whatever reason, that the stock market is going to crash next week. And if all of your assets are tied up in the markets, that belief has considerable significance for you. Now, a Christian has certain beliefs that carries an importance of monumental proportions. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son, in Jesus Christ, has eternal life. So belief in Jesus and in his death and resurrection is actually the basis for my whole well-being. That's a big belief. Literally a belief with life and death consequence. It couldn't be greater. And that's why it's not surprising that we term Christians believers. Because we believe something of great consequence. Stuff that matters more than anything else. We are believers. So what is a belief? Well, every belief we have is subjective. In that it's a, the belief is in us. So this is my belief about this and that. So in that sense, you could call a belief subject matter in me. 
In fact, if you were going to pin me down for a definition of belief, I'd define it like this. Belief is a truth carrier in me, or in you, if you happen to have it. So it's what I believe to be true about whatever my belief happens to be about. And we operate on the basis of thousands of beliefs. So you will have some kind of belief about when you think the sermon's going to end. Whether it's a true belief or not, we'll see. You have a certain belief, perhaps, about what bus you're going to catch tomorrow morning to get to work. You'll have a certain belief whether Brexit means the end or the beginning of our nation's future and welfare. Now, your belief, whatever it is, may or may not be true. Just because you carry a truth in the form of a belief within you subjectively doesn't make that belief true. So you may believe that the girl you're dating wants to spend the rest of her life with you. But I would suggest it's only when you ask that girl to marry you that that belief will then be certified as either true or false. So what that means is that our beliefs need to be certified by the real world. They can't just stay within us. All beliefs require a reality check. In the language of verse 33 of our text, they need certification. They need to be certified, our beliefs, that they're true. And one of the reasons why beliefs need to be certified is because we're all capable of believing stuff that's not true. It's quite easy to be deluded. We moderns can look back on lots of ancient delusions, not even that ancient. In the 19th century, would you believe it? It was believed that English men should avoid salad if they want to start a family. And the belief rested on plant lore. It was taken very seriously, apparently, that lettuce is detrimental to childbearing because it's a sterile plant. So don't eat lettuce. Here's the point. Our beliefs must have a strong foundation. So they match up with the real world. Now, in order to get to the point John's making in this passage, I want to highlight three solid foundations for our beliefs. All of our beliefs need one of these three solid foundations. The first solid foundation is logic. Using what we might call the power of deduction. The power of rationality. Now, someone recently sent me a a social media post that came across online and... Here's how it went. I want you to use your power of logic. The post went, squirrels are my new favorite reptile. Anybody have a problem with that? Squirrels are my new favorite reptile. Now that's what someone believed, bless them. That was the truth carrier within them. Squirrels were reptiles. Now, I'm a little bit thick when it comes to this kind of thing, but this statement as someone's truth carrier didn't stand up very well to logic. They were on rather thin ice. I don't know if you heard this. My favorite description of a a squirrel is this. It's a rat with PR, with public relations. The rat being a rodent. Squirrels are rodents. They're not reptiles. A squirrel cannot be your new favorite reptile. That is impossible. That's a logical fallacy. 
So we use logic as a foundation for our beliefs, to test them. And this is a wonderful foundation. Thank God for logic. And actually, in the century we belong to, we see a culture which is becoming more and more illogical. The Kavanaugh hearings? Whoa! Was there any logic in it? Thank God for logic. What a wonderful foundation. However, as wonderful as logic is, there's a limit to how far it can go. Logic can't be the foundation of all our beliefs. And it certainly cannot establish all beliefs. And that's because there are certain things in the real world that go beyond pure logic. doesn't mean they're illogical, but they go beyond the foundation of it. So, here's an example. You've got some food in front of you. You believe that food just served to you in a restaurant is poisoned. You cannot use logic alone to determine whether that food has been poisoned or not. Or, you begin in logic and establish your belief that you're a direct descendant of Elvis Presley. Now, logic alone cannot provide the foundation, the certitude for that particular belief. So there are some beliefs that require different foundations. And I would say this is true of any belief connected to God. No one, and this is in the history of philosophy, has ever been able to prove or disprove the existence of God by logic alone. Most philosophers agree to that assertion. And I would say if we try to use logic as the foundation for everything, we get ourselves in terrible trouble. I remember watching this happen to one of my kids when he was four years old. He's sitting in the middle of a group of people who are smoking. And my son asked the smokers, why do you do that? And one of the smokers came back and said, well, young Calvin, don't you think smokers can go to heaven? And apparently four-year-old Calvin stroked his chin for quite a long time. He was in logic, and he said, well, I reckon they can because smoke goes up. Now, it wasn't a bad piece of logic, but actually, it's flawed logic. That doesn't determine how you get to heaven or not if you're a smoker, whether you'll get there or not. So logic is a good and solid foundation for some beliefs, but it's never exhaustive. So that's the first foundation. The second foundation for true beliefs is testing. This is what we call the inductive route. And it goes by different names, the empirical method or the scientific method. So back to the food in front of you, you believe it contains poison. You can't use logic to determine whether it's poison. You have to go to a laboratory and test it. Or you believe you're a direct descendant of Elvis Presley, you have to go to a public records office and trace your family tree. You have to test your belief assumption and come up with a different kind of proof. So testing does what logic alone can't do. So in this foundation, you get out of the philosopher's chair, the philosopher sits there and he uses the logic, but the tester gets out into the real world and grapples with it. Now, our modern world is founded very much on this belief foundation, the empirical method. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm thankful for healthcare founded not on just logic, but on testing. There is, however, a modern fallacy that most people operate with today, and it's this. 
that empirical testing is the only foundation for belief. That empirically testing something is the only thing that gives belief legitimacy. The philosopher Thomas Huxley expressed this as so many tend to believe it today. He says, the man of science has learned to believe in justification not by faith, but by verification. That means testing empirically. I don't know know if you've ever heard of the black cat analogy. It, It really gets at this. The black cat analogy goes like this. Philosophy is like being in a dark room and looking for a black cat that isn't there. Okay. Theology, uh oh, here it comes to us, is like being in a dark room and looking for a black cat that isn't there and shouting, I found it. Science is like being in a dark room looking for a black cat while using a flashlight. It's testing it. So it dismisses the black cat analogy completely, philosophy and theology. Science goes in with a flashlight in order to get a foundation for belief. Now, the problem with all belief resting on this certification, the empirical, is that itself, science is based on the belief generally that everything that is, is matter. That's what the flashlight analogy gives us. The flashlight can highlight everything in the room. It can all be seen, which means it's all material. There's nothing but matter. Now, that belief is a huge one. And that's where moderns stand. That is their foundational belief. That we live in a merely material world. And science operates today on the basis of that. But that's a huge belief statement. Which too needs some kind of verifying. Who's to say we can ask that there isn't a realm of reality that exists beyond the scene. Beyond what the flashlight gets at. And how could an empirical test verify what's unseen beyond the material? The point is there are all kinds of beliefs that don't have their foundation in science and the empirical method. All kinds of things. There's a Cambridge philosopher who is an atheist, a materialist, and he gave this great lecture about six years ago, the problem of the seven M's. And some of his M's that cannot be verified through science. Things like meaning, morality, music, math. No basis through testing to really verify, certify these things. It only goes so far. And we as Christians would say, as wonderful as science is, it can never be the foundation for the kind of beliefs that are core to our faith. That includes God. You can't test him empirically. What happened at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Our belief goes beyond that foundation. Doesn't mean it's illogical. Doesn't mean that there's no empirical basis for it in terms of you were there. But it's not enough to lay the foundation for our central beliefs. So foundations, logic testing, very, very good. The third one, and here's where we come, bring it home, is testimony. Testimony. Now we're back in John 3. Because this text is all about testimony as the foundation for belief. 
And the point we have to grapple with as Christians and grasp firmly is that testimony is a legitimate foundation for true belief. And for Christianity, it's the main one. Testimony. It's interesting, many, all of us here hold many, many of our beliefs on the basis of another person's testimony. So lots of our beliefs are formed on the testimony of our parents, of our teachers, of our friends. I think of my mother who loved her own family history. So she gave the testimony to us as kids of what happened on her side of the family. Where she came from, where she she was brought up, what it was like to be a war child who didn't see her dad until he came back from the war. What my great-grandparents were like. It was all her testimony to us as children. And her testimony wasn't rooted primarily in logic. She was just telling us what happened in her own experience. And I certainly haven't researched every detail of what she told me to test and verify whether it, was, whether it really happened. And actually, that would be impossible anyway. Much of history is beyond empirical testing. History is something you receive largely as testimony. And my mom's testimony has been certified to me by the fact that I find her to be trustworthy. She's very careful about detail. So I think there's good reason to accept largely the testimony of our family history. So it's become the foundation for my understanding of our family history. Another quick example here. We have a whole legal system that rests on the foundation of testimony. So yes, in the law courts, you have forensic evidence. There's the testing component. The lawyer, of course, is constantly probing statements for its logic or its lack of logic. But the foundation of the court is witness. Witnesses bear testimony to what happened. And that's accepted in a court as the basis for shaping the belief of a jury. So testimony is central to our legal system. So the point is this. Testimony is a a, a significant, legitimate foundation for shaping belief. And today we ignore that. We dismiss it. But it's a very important belief formation shaper. So John is emphasizing here in this passage that the belief of a a Christian rests on the foundation of testimony. And testimony is woven all the way through our passage. Verse 26, John's groupies come to him. They're a bit concerned because people are going over to Jesus. So they say, say, Rabbi, the man who who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. So the recognition that John testified to Jesus. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. He's referring to a testimony. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And he's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. He's being addressed now. And that joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less, because the testimony is now his. That's his point. So the one who comes from above, 
referring to Jesus, is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard. Now let me briefly, as I finish up, open this out by asking two questions that this passage addresses. Two very important questions. The first is this. What is the testimony that forms the foundation of Christian belief? What is this testimony that forms the foundation of our Christian belief? Well, our text says it's the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. That's the basis of our belief, the testimony of Jesus. The one who comes from above, verse 31, Jesus, is above all. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth. John's referring to himself and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all, and he testifies to what he has seen and heard. So John's argument through the passage is this. He's saying, I got a testimony from heaven. I didn't make it up. I received it. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. So the basis of John's testimony was the voice of Christ himself. John got his testimony from Jesus. He doesn't tell us how it happened. I speculate they were cousins. They hung out together, but who knows? He got his testimony from Jesus. That's the point he's making. And his argument is this, John the Baptist's argument, that the testimony that really counts is the one that comes in the, from the person of Jesus Christ. So what's the testimony that forms the foundation of Christian belief? It's the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. And it's to be received as nothing less than his testimony. Now, in verse 34, John adds and tells us that this testimony from Jesus is actually the words of God. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. The testimony of Jesus is the word of God. That's the weight and authority of this testimony at the foundation of our belief, of our faith. Now, for us in the 21st century, the testimony of Jesus is contained quite simply in Scripture. I think we've lost the sense that older believers had that the words of Scripture are the words of Christ. Scripture is the testimony of Jesus speaking his words to us in a living and an active way. So when we hear the words of Scripture, we're being addressed by the testimony of Christ himself. That is the foundation of our belief. The next thing that the text tells about this testimony is that it's a testimony to what he alone has seen and heard. Verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. Now, in the light of our three foundations for belief, this means that Jesus testifies about stuff that logic and science and human testimony couldn't possibly probe. And the reason he can tell us 
about things we couldn't possibly know through our probing is in who he is. John reminds us in verse 35 that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He comes from above and he tells us what he's seen and heard. And that identity of Jesus, which John is verifying all the way through his gospel, makes his testimony unique. He is the eternal Son of God. He's dwelt in all time, from eternity, with his Father. So he has seen and heard personally what we're cut off from. A little bit like my mom when he told, told, she told us about her family history. We weren't there. She was. She saw it. She heard it. She spoke to us about it. Well, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, in heaven with the Father, tells us what he has seen and heard, what he knows personally. And as the Son of God, he can tell us who God the Father is. So his testimony is about a God that logic and science could never disclose and uncover. So this testimony is to what he alone has seen and heard. And then thirdly, this text tells us that it's a testimony which is backed up by the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. And then this interesting clause, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Often in Scripture, the work of the word of testimony is brought together with the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the same gospel later on, John is going to call the Spirit the Spirit of truth. The Spirit who confirms the testimony to us. So the work of the Holy Spirit is the agency that makes Jesus' testimony vibrate with truth and reality. It forms the solid belief that we stand on. So the testimony from Jesus himself, what he's seen and heard, backed up and sealed to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the testimony. The second question is this, the the text addressed. What does it mean then to be a believer? Well, a believer is simply someone who has received and accepted this testimony of Jesus. At the end of the day, it's as simple as that. Jesus gives the testimony as the foundation for belief, and we receive and accept it, and that makes us believers. Verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony, but whoever does accept it, certifies that God is truthful. So a believer is someone who simply accepts this testimony from Jesus Christ. And the text goes on then to say that to accept the testimony of Jesus is to have our belief certified as true. We accept it, and in the acceptance of the testimony, we see that this is true. God certifies it to us as truth. Again, it's so simple. When someone accepts accepts the testimony of Jesus and becomes a believer, that acceptance of the testimony becomes the certification, the validation that it's good and true testimony. And that's because of who it comes from. It's Jesus who's delivered this. I believe and I say, oh, he's utterly good. Why would he lie to me? It's certified as the truth. And then to accept the testimony of Jesus and to become a believer 
John says, is to get eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's something about the content of this testimony from Jesus that's so consequential that it delivers the greatest, highest gift possible. The same quality of life that Jesus has, eternal life. And we, of course, know through the wider writings of Scripture that this is only on the basis of Christ's gospel, which is a key part of his testimony, how we get this eternal life, by believing on what he has done for us. So, our belief is based on a testimony, a testimony from Jesus Christ. And it's a solid basis for belief. That's the point that John is making here. So for all, for all you here who are already believers, you've accepted the testimony, my word is simply keep accepting this testimony. Keep being a believer. Every day, by receiving, accepting the testimony. Make it the foundation of your life. Continue to be a believer. Your belief based on this testimony. And then for any here this evening who may not be believers, who may be an unbeliever, I simply ask you to consider opening to this testimony from Jesus. Now this text is clear that that is not an easy thing to do. Like John says, our default is not to accept the testimony. So we can never see whether it's true. Because our default is to reject it. That comes through a lot in John's gospel. And one of the reasons we reject it is because it has some hard truths. Look at how the text ends. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The testimony isn't all easy to receive. There's some hard stuff involved in this testimony, but that doesn't make it untrue just because it's hard. And the point is for you too to accept the testimony with its promise, with its accusation, will get you also eternal life. Every believer gets eternal life in Jesus Christ. So the point to make here, the point John's making, is that testimony is linked to belief. And it's a legitimate way for belief to be formed. And our testimony is extra special because it's the testimony of Christ himself. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we're not in the dark with a flashlight whose batteries are running out, but we are in the light of your truth and the light of your testimony, which speaks and reveals all kinds of aspects of reality that we could never see for ourselves, either with logic or with testing. So we thank you that our faith rests on your reliable testimony. We thank you that your testimony is good because you are good, and we pray that you would help us to be believers in every sense of the word by receiving, by listening to, and accepting your wonderful testimony. We thank you for all that it gets us, eternal life, And Lord, if there are any here this night who have not yet accepted your testimony, we pray that by your Spirit you would open their hearts so they too can come into the eternal life that believing gets them. So Lord, we thank you for all your gifts and the gift of your testimony and the gift of faith by which we believe. And we thank you in your most worthy name. Amen.